0: this episode of african tech conversations is brought to you by freshbooks the easy to use invoicing software designed to help you get organized save time invoicing and get paid faster if that sounds good to you click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations to activate a 30-day free trial oliver fortain heads up bt's operations in sub-saharan africa He's tasked with leading the charge for this legacy ICT institution in some of the world's most promising developing markets. Prior to joining BT, Oliver held executive positions at I1 Solutions, HP, and IBM. In addition to chatting about his upbringing and his journey up the corporate ladder, our conversation touches on everything from macroeconomics to the business challenges that keep Oliver and his team on their toes. Be sure to listen in, if only to hear Oliver's answer when asked, what disruptive trend could potentially render BT redundant in the next decade? This is African Tech Conversation. Now, Oliver Fortain, we've been speaking off mic about very complex issues um, to do with, uh, you know, getting the continent to the forefront of innovation and development uh, at a global scale. And now picking off some of the things that we, you know, weren't said on mic, I want to ask you a question. I mean... This is a chicken and egg scenario for me. Where does the continent start in developing a sense of self determination? Is it in negotiating with the West, which many perceive hold all the cards and as far as controlling the global economies is concerned as far as uh, benefiting from trade agreements that that force the developing world to to basically uh, service the West you know on terms that basically benefit the west? Is it in getting over ourselves as a continent in the case of Africa and just getting along, for goodness sake, uh, improving trade amongst us so that we can be a united front on, on a global scale. Where do we begin? And I'm asking you because you're part of a, a truly international organization, a multinational organization that's been here long, um, and you probably have a, a world view that might be different to, s- to say, an executive that, that manages uh, an Africa-only business.
1: You know, as you said, it's a it's a big complex area, uh, and I don't think there are binary answers that are right. So, for example, you know, the West as as a trading partner, they've been good for us for sure in terms of you know uh, access to markets and the like. Uh, but they also leverage their their trading advantages uh, to their own advantage. Uh, And Africa, you know, if we're going to start the dialogue about how does Africa get to a a point where the balance of trade is a bit more in our favor and how do we get to a point where, you know, we take this embarrassment of riches that we have in minerals and people and so on and we make those, you know, exportable after we've added value to it, right? Because that's really how we unlock real value. But everything we need to do is within our grasp, Now, is it easy to do no because you don't want to offend the trading partners you do have? You don't want uh, things like the AGOA agreement and so on falling apart, uh, you know, based on on any kind of uh, short-term, very self-interested initiatives we may drive. But I don't think our Western partners would uh, have any issue with Africa starting to trade with Africa, uh, with Africa starting to build policies that industrialize Africa from within you know, and I think those are things that that we need to do. But to do that, we need uh, a better dialogue amongst African governments. I mean, our own government and Nigeria, as an example, in in sub-Saharan Africa should be leading that conversation. And uh, many times we don't, we're not even talking to each other. So there's some basic, basic things that we need to get past. Um, But if we do, if we get past those, and we do have Africa talking with one voice, and Africa starting to drive intra-Africa trade, and Africa starting to take control of its own destiny and Trading terms, we you know we really start to make some big strides.
0: If someone's listening into this podcast, they've they've come expecting a conversation on tech innovation, all things digital, and here we are talking about hardcore macro and microeconomic issues. And maybe someone listening is thinking, man, what does this have to do with the price of tea? In I don't know, Japan. (laughs) And it's interesting to note that Vodafone has just recently launched or rolled out in in, in Zambia. I think people probably don't realize to what extent the the West has invested in the ICT space across the continent in developing uh, technologies and indeed in in the leading companies in the mobile telco space, in the fixed-line space, even in the Wi-Fi space let's contextualize what you just said in terms of technology and 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 africa becoming a serious player on that front.
1: Yeah, i think you know the the conversation we just had about africa charting its own destiny doesn't happen without technology. Uh, in fact, there's very little today that happens that's either transformative or disruptive without technology at the heart of it. So, you've got the same kind of conversation that you should be having around you know africa making policies that suit africa uh, Africa trading with itself etc you have the same thing in the tech space you know R&D is a great example we import a lot of what we deploy as technology uh, into Africa there's no reason why we, we can't be at the forefront of actually starting to develop those technologies we're very innovative in the deployment of technology you know because we have to be necessity forces us there right so so you find things happening in Africa that are truly unique I mean we were right at the forefront of mobile mo- of mobile money so you guys like are very early on doing things that actually wasn't happening around the rest of the world. And they did it because there was a clear need in this market, you know, uh, cost of banking, you know, how fragmented that customer base is, et etc. et cetera. The way they bridged that uh, opportunity was through technology. So technology is a big player in how we unlock uh, our, our potential going forward, right? And, and again, it's one of those things where, as you say, the West is heavily invested in Africa, uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, um, IP, the software we use, the, you know, the way we deploy it, the models that we, we use to deploy these things into business and how we create new business models. A lot of that does come from the West. We're starting to see more our BRICS trading partners starting to you know, um, enter that space and they're starting to import things into Africa. There's no reason why Africa doesn't develop its own robust ICT uh, environment that's capable of export.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, for argument's sake, we could uh, impress as a, an example of really a Vodafone in, innovation on the continent, if we're honest. And um, I suppose one can take the hardcore pan-Africanist or nationalist view, depending, you know, where you're sitting, and, and say That's, that should have been us, all us. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't lean to that extreme. I do think, though, it's, it's about time those sort of innovations are homegrown and home run, and we don't just jump on board at the, at the rollout stage.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, we've, we've, uh, we have probably have a situation where you could have packaged and and taken it a, a bit more globally because you have other emerging markets that look exactly like we do, and, and that, was, that was done early enough that you could do that. But if you look at disruptive technologies uh, that, are, you know, that, are, that are really changing the way certain industries work, Uber is a good example, right? What stops that from being an African development? Nothing, right? Nothing actually stops that from happening in Africa.
0: Well, certainly there are people trying to, to, to give Uber a run for its money. Perhaps the other way around, because at this point it's difficult to imagine anyone disrupting them. But um, your point's absolutely taken. But let's dial back to how this, these sort of conversations I have uh, normally begin. I want you to think back to the very first suit that you wore as a kid. Do you have that in your head? Yeah. Okay, so do you remember what color it was?
1: Uh, you know, it's, I'm not sure, actually. But I would think probably black,
0: in all likelihood. And was it like a, a did you wear it with a tie, a bow tie?
1: No, definitely tie. Um, just trying to think about the context. It would be Sunday, and it would be my mother, who was very religious. Um, so it would be tie and probably a, ros- a rosary over it, something like that. Yeah.
0: So now, okay, now you need to fill in the blanks, because you got me intrigued. Now, tell me a little more about the Sunday morning. You've got your suit on. Your mother's put it on. You've got a rosary around your neck. Sights and sounds, who's with you, where are you going, um, are there siblings involved? T- tell me about the room and the, and the world that little boy is getting ready to go to church in. Um,
1: yeah, so definitely mom and dad. My, my siblings, I'm the youngest of many older siblings, so they were, they were all off somewhere. But I had some, well, my nephews, roughly my age, in the house. So it would be Sunday morning, getting ready for church, uh, you know, my mother beating everybody into the car so that we were not late and then reminding us in the car that we're staying for Sunday school afterwards. which right? was always the worst because you extend that you know, two-hour travel to church, church service and back by another couple of hours. Uh, that, that would be typical.
0: So where are we? What city are we in? What country
1: are we in? Uh, we're in Johannesburg in South Africa uh, on the western side of Johannesburg in a little place called Nuclear. Not too many people will know it.
0: I don't even know that. And I consider myself pretty much a Joburg at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, it's, a, it's a very small, very poor community, uh, literally eight kilometers from the heart of
0: you know, the, the city center. What are some of the most vivid memories about that time in your life?
1: For me, what, what I remember most is that um, there was a strong sense of community. So we would often not even lock our door. So even though the community was quite poor, you know, people would keep an eye on each other. You you know, adults would keep an eye on other people's kids and so on. Very safe community. And uh, I think that's what I remember the most is that people, you know, were always there for each other.
0: Um, and so what kind of kid were you? Were you the 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 naughtiest in, sun, in Sunday school or uh, were you, you know, the quiet sort of parent pleaser? What were you? Um, yeah,
1: I was quite very introverted, um, quiet. But with a with a healthy rebellious streak. So, you know, I, I, I became an altar boy later in life and um, I used to miss uh, altar practice quite, um, quite regularly to go off and play football because it was, you know, inconvenient that uh, I played league football and the practice would be when we were supposed to be practicing on the football pitch. So I would skip church altogether and my mom got to know because the priest came to see her. And that became a big thing in our household. And fortunately, I'd have, you know, my, dad was, um, my dad would go to church, but because he was forced to, right? Because otherwise my mother would beat him, right? So, so he'd go to church because of that. But actually, he was really an atheist. So my mother forced the discussion, and I was about 13 years old. And my dad said, well, he's a man now. He needs to decide. And I chose football.
0: Wow. Well, and the, you, you, you say league football, but were you any good?
1: Uh, I, I was pretty uh, – I love football. Still love football, uh, but I was pretty average, I'd say. I, I, I was a better swimmer, so I swam competitively. But my son, my youngest boy, was a very good footballer. He is a very good
0: footballer. So tell me what that little boy, i, I I'd imagine what football would have been your dream career choice at that stage in your life?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I saw myself as a career athlete when I was 13. If you saw me today, you wouldn't think it, right? But uh, when I was 13, for sure. Uh, if, if I could have chosen a career and made it happen, it would have been, I would have been playing for Liverpool next to Ian Rush up front.
0: I remember Ian Rush. I was a huge Liverpool fan. I've since turned Arsenal. But anyway, um, <laughs> when did that bubble burst for you? When did you realise this wasn't going to happen and then what do you remember wanting to be next?
1: Um, I, I think, you know, as you, uh, as you kind of progress and you get older and you're starting to play more competitive sports, you quickly realize where your level's at. And the one thing I understood early on was that, you know, I, I wasn't a star athlete, you know, a good kind of workhorse. If I worked hard, I, I looked fairly respectable. Uh, but then when you put the really good guys next to you, you suddenly look very average, right? So that realization comes with time. Um, I started coding at a young age, so, you know, tech was always it for me. It was the thing I'd, even as a 16-year-old, I'd I'd try to find every scrap I could read. So by the time I was 17, I was coding in in a whole bunch of, you know, commercial languages. Um, And it was just, it was a natural, you
0: know, I was just drawn to it. And so how would you have been introduced to coding um, in that time and era?
1: Um, So uh, PCs were uh, fairly new um they'd just been introduced you know early 80s and uh there weren't that many around the neighborhood but there were one or two um so i got involved that way through a friend uh, and then uh, eventually got myself onto a course uh, when i was about 16 years old uh, where i learned to code properly it was in very basic language turbo pascal but then you know as as I got more interested and started to talk to people in the industry, and eventually ended up at IBM as a as a very young lad, you know that that obviously progressed, and I, I got into more sophisticated programming.
0: I, I want you to think back to the first time you wore a suit to work. I want you to tell me you know your mindset, and contrast it to the first time you wore a suit as a kid.
1: It would have been uh, I, I was a techie's techie, right? So suits were were not a thing. Uh, until uh, I landed in the U.S. with IBM uh, on assignment and uh, suddenly had to do do something which was quite foreign for me, which was talk to customers. So that's the first time I actually wore a suit. And I had to go and buy one because I didn't have one. Um, so I'd been working at this point for about three years. I hadn't known a suit. <laughs> so I went and bought one. Uh, when I contrasted, obviously, you know, as, as that youngster was being dressed by my mom, I'm not sure that anything sort of fit well enough. And buying your first suit, uh, that that fit properly. It was smart but stylish and, you know, yeah, um, yeah I, I
0: remember that quite well. You remember feeling good about yourself maybe?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not a, again, you know, I'm an introvert, so getting up and talking in front of people is actually quite difficult. And what you don't want is your hair sticking up the wrong way or, you know, so something you missed, like a stray bogey. Or, yeah. <laughs> a stray bogey, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's random. <laughs> yeah, but you, you, you know what I mean. So you want to make sure at least the exterior, you know, uh, Uh, looks the part, right? Uh, Because you're you're really worried getting up there for the first time. You look out at this audience and you're terrified, right? But you realize quite quickly that actually you know more than the audience does. So that settles you down.
0: It's almost like a Peter Parker situation where you're a totally different person outside the suit as you are within it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's your current dress code these days, most days?
1: Uh, Most days is smart casual. So I'll, you know, uh, normally wear a shirt. Fridays I might put on a t-shirt. Um, And then suits are really for formal occasions, you know, customer meetings or uh, internal formal or press events or that type of thing.
0: What do you think that dress code uh, would allow someone like me to infer about uh, what kind of leader you are, do you think?
1: Wow, okay. No one's ever asked me that before. Um, I guess it allows you to infer that I'm you know i 'm quite flexible to what the environment requires, uh, but that my my natural instinct would be to dress down rather than to dress up, uh, and that would probably tell you that my natural leader style my natural leadership style would be uh, more informal and formal and formal when it needs to be
0: right okay well at this point i 'd say uh it 's you know it's you 're pretty much a seasoned corporate animal at this stage. Uh, You've worked for the likes of IBM, like you've mentioned, but also HP, I believe. Um, what sort of things, looking over your experience at these really blue-chip multinationals and the career you've, you've enjoyed there and you know, the leader you've become, what, what would you advise someone who, who aspires to that?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say um, even though that the world's changed quite dramatically, and the way companies recruit and manage those recruits has changed quite dramatically from my day, there are things that remain consistent, and they the, the things that you're in control of. Yeah, if you work hard, invest in the right things, don't cut corners, you're going to do well. You know, um, and I would say to a new recruit coming in, you know, you, you need to learn to network. The earlier you do it, the better. Um, But don't make it a political exercise, you know. Network so you know the right people so that when you need to have a conversation, uh, you can have the conversation. But, you know, don't do it to promote yourself. Uh, If you tie that to a good work ethic and and really being diligent and applying yourself, you know, always to the right things in the work environment, you're going to do well. And these companies, I mean, they're great companies, right? They offer real opportunity. Um, So anybody, literally anybody, can excel in that environment and that's you know that's the beauty of these companies i think if you take my background and where i come from there's no way i would have dreamed that i would have ended up as a ceo somewhere and the the investments that ibm and hp and now bt have made in me um have driven that right have driven that success obviously i've contributed with sweat equity um but but it literally means anybody can do it
0: and so how much of your journey has been you know consistent long slog versus say uh, patches of really hard work and then big breaks you know how uh, would you a or b
1: um I, I think it's a combination of the two. I think you're more a than b, so you, you you're consistently slogging all the time, and then every now and then something is going to come along that's a game changer
0: uh, and what would those what would that, what would be an example of a game changer for you or a couple of examples maybe?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, IBM sold the PC company to a company called Lenovo. Uh, I happened to be part of the PC company at that stage. I was running um, um, the Africa PC business in IBM. Uh, and I had just moved across as the EA to the president of the PC company. Um, so it didn't feel like a big break when, when uh, we sold the company to Lenovo because obviously I moved along with it. But actually if I look at the experience I gained from A, doing the transaction, then B, being part of a team that was actually putting a, a very large business together in Western markets. They didn't understand Western markets because Lenovo is a Chinese company, right? Um, that was massive. So it was a it was really a massive break. And, and it did a lot of good things for my career. It accelerated me into senior management in a fashion I think that would have been difficult to achieve just logging along as I was in IBM at the time.
0: All right. So, you know, no one seems to be staying in their lane these days. Uh, mobile telcos are major fintech players. Banks are becoming telcos. Telcos are becoming content providers. What lane or lanes would you say BT is in these days? And what would you say your major play on the continent is?
1: Yeah, I think BT is um, um, certainly not a traditional telco anymore. Uh, and I, if, you, if you asked me for a definition, I would say uh, telecommunications technology integrator because a lot of what we do is built on top of the network. Yeah, but but actually has nothing to do with the network. So when you talk about things like unified communications, it's all about how people communicate, um, and you know, in in inside of that um, sits technology that traditionally would a Telco would not have had anything to do with. Um, sorry, I forgot the second part of the question. But that that's BT's lane,
0: right? So yeah. So what would you say your focus on the continent specifically would be in that regard? Were you speaking for BT Sub-Saharan Africa? Right. Um, uh,
1: I mean, I think uh, in that regard, we did a survey recently about the big uh, trends that are happening in technology, right, and that are disruptive and that are changing the way that businesses absorb technology. Uh, and, uh, you know, those big trends, which are which are really cloud, mobile and data, or big data, if you like, you know, as it was coined uh, not so long ago um, – are, are all at the center of our portfolio. So those are the things that we, the heart of all of our technologies are built around, those three things. Uh, so I think that's what, you know, our big drive is to bring that to Africa and to make a bi- uh, to make a difference, not just to African businesses, but to the way Africa absorbs technolo-
0: technology. It's interesting you mentioned data because South Africa's biggest telco, the government-owned telcom, uh, surprised lots of people recently by announcing a fairly good set of financial results. And, and some of the things that... Uh, stand out to me as what I believe would have contributed to those results is the aggressive cost-cutting measures they, they've implemented uh, of late, retrenching something like 4,200 people, a boom in the firm's data business, which which is what you just. Uh, reminded me of just now, and, and of course, mobile revenues growing in their case by something like sixty percent. Does this sort of thing mirror what's going on at BT? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, we've had uh, BT in sub-Saharan Africa has grown quite dramatically over the last few years, right? So we've grown on average six times the market, um, and it's because we're growing in the in the in the areas that are the high growth areas in terms of it of ICT, right? Um, Telcom, I think, have really done a good job of positioning themselves. Uh, to take advantage of the big trends. You know? So if you look at the acquisition of BCX, if you look at, as you say, you know, cost containment obviously was a big drive for them, but it wasn't necessarily, I think, only about fixing the bottom line. It was about reinvesting in those areas where growth is coming from. So they've done a great job. Uh, I think that the, the next piece of work they're probably focused on is to take that across the continent of Africa, which would be a great story for South Africa.
0: Yeah? And so what would you say is the biggest strategic conundrum at BT? In terms of growth uh, on the continent, uh, in fact, before you answer that, I, I, I'm sometimes not sure what to make of companies that treat the entire Sub-Saharan territory as one thing, because I believe you you oversee something like 43 countries or something like that. Is, isn't that spreading you a little thin?
1: Well, we, yeah, I mean, so yeah, Sub-Saharan is always a, an interesting, um, an, you know, a, a, an interesting uh, problem, let's say, to try and tackle. Uh, actually there' are forty eight countries on the continent of Africa. And then, if you add in the Oce- Indian ocean islands, it goes up to fifty three We also have Israel as a country which is which is an interesting anomaly territory wise but the approach we 've taken is pretty much the approach that i think you 're going to find that most people trade to a pan african uh, strategy right we 've picked six markets in which to build presence. Uh, but we will build network across all African markets. So we don't necessarily have to have a presence to operate a network in a country because we have partners uh, that we do that through. Uh, we can own the infrastructure, we can own a telco license, you know, and service that through a partner infrastructure. So there are six countries, though, in which we will replicate what we've done in
0: South Africa. And so which are, the, which are those countries?
1: Uh, so it's uh, Nigeria, obviously, uh, Kenya, And what that does is, so you have South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya giving you the the, the critical mass to create a hub-and-spoke model. So those countries become the hub. You create the skill sets to be able to support smaller countries off that. uh, And you can deal with the regional dynamics through the hub country. Uh, And then Ghana, which, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, oil, massively uh, expanding economy, but also you have – uh, Ghana has very good ICT infrastructure now with an additional cable being landed in Ghana and then Mozambique uh, because we need to cover you know that part of the territory uh, and then there's some debate about who number six is uh, but probably in the eastern hub and either
0: Tanzania or Uganda. Conspicuously absent from that list is a North African uh, hub?
1: Yeah, so North Africa, so the big ones, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia, Etc. Actually, uh, are managed out of Middle East uh, because, obviously, as trading markets, they mostly trade with the Middle East. So, for that reason.
0: Okay. So, okay, that that explains that. But then, get back to the question. You know, I I, I didn't finish asking, which is what would you say then is the biggest strategic conundrum, in 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 growing this business, the business that you currently manage
1: i think it's in I think it 's in the diversity that you you spoke about earlier, right, so you have you know forty eight countries that you 're trying to um, that you 're trying to grow in every one of them has a set of market conditions that 's unique, every one of them has its own regulator who doesn 't necessarily see things the same way as the regulator next door um, and every one of them has you know right today in Africa uh, you know three four years ago we we were We were in a better position, right? But with the end of the commodity super cycle, there's been a lot of pressure on African economies. You see that particularly in Nigeria where the economy is almost halved, right, through what's happened to the price of oil. That's starting to turn. So that that, that was a big growth inhibitor. And I think that that in the next two to three years is going to turn, right? But then the complexity in Africa remains. And we need to solve that. As every South African business that has an ambition to expand northward has to solve, that's the big thing for us to solve.
0: So back to the, the model you described around partnering with you know, owning infrastructure, perhaps having a license here and there, but ultimately working through partners. How much of that is strategically um, to take advantage of brands that maybe in, those, in unique markets are trusted perhaps to a greater extent or perhaps at all great, to a greater extent than, say, BT? And, 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 and my second question, which is linked, is how much of a liability does being BT – um, ever pose in in growth in in, in certain markets on the continent.
1: Um, well, to to answer the second one first, um, uh, it's not often that that the BT brand or the British heritage is a liability, but there are times. I mean, we know that you know that um, in Africa there are sentiments toward the West that aren't always root, rooted in kind of you know uh, rational. Business thinking, right? So we don't come across that very much. Africa is very open to, uh, you know, to to rich IP and to investment. And we bring that in spades. So if you talk about the partner landscape, clearly what they give us is we're not looking for the partners to give us branding into the market or, you know, to kind of fix any ills in our own business. What we are looking to them for is uh, their reach and their capability in market. Uh, So clearly they've got people in market, they have infrastructure in market, and they have relationships, which for us to replicate that across the markets that, you know, that – A few key partners are in would take decades and would take uh, an amount of money that I think we probably never pay back. So the business case doesn't stack. But in the partner model, where you've got a partner who has, you know, great infrastructure, great market presence, and we bring BT's global reach and capability and IP to the partner, the model works fantastically.
0: That's just good business. It's not being sneaky. It's just good business. <laughs> okay, well, you know, look, like, like Telcom that we just spoke about earlier, um, BT is traditionally a fixed-line business. Uh, I know in your, uh, in your reception area you even have one of those little red t- ticky boxes that, you know, uh, uh, London has made ve- quite famous around the world. Um, uh, however, you know, what are you doing to keep up with an increasingly data-driven communication business, which you, you've, you've touched on, and how are you leveraging existing infrastructure – in you know, and the legacy you have within fixed line to to basically you know keep those pesky mobile telcos at bay.
1: Well, uh, I mean, it's an interesting question. So obviously, for us, that legacy infrastructure sits in the UK, and uh, what, what a lot of people don't know probably about BT is we 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 are one of the big R and D investors globally in in ICT. Uh, so we have this facility called Adastral Park, and they do some really wonderfully clever things. So the gyro technology on your mobile phone, you know, the thing that uh, switches your phone from portrait to landscape view, uh, that was invented by BT in Adastral. You know, and there are lots of little examples like that. But if you talk about the infrastructure, we we've developed technologies that allow us to run high speed broadband over copper, as an example. So we can, in production, run three hundred megabits per second over copper today. We're the only ones globally who can do that, right? And in the labs, we're starting to scale that to five hundred megabits. So what it allows you to do is instead of you know this massive cost that's uh, associated with deploying fiber today, uh, and the business case that you know needs a big uptake on fiber. Uh, for many operators around the world, Telcom included, yeah, they have massive legacy infrastructure in copper. You can actually, with these technologies, give that infrastructure an extended lifespan you know, and, and, and do uh, what households need today. Households don't need copper lines anymore for, for telephony. right? No one does that except maybe the very poorest households. Uh, but even those, mostly it's used now for data. Right? It's people running ADSL, and they're running ADSL at 20 megabits per second in this country. So we we have a great solution for Telcom, and actually we're talking to them about it.
0: We're taking a quick break to remind you of FreshBooks pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a 30-day free trial to let you try out their service. Now, if you'd like to get organized, save time invoicing, and get paid faster, click through to gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations and put them to the test. That's gofreshbooks.com forward slash tech conversations. And so would you go as far as saying that that legacy infrastructure is a competitive advantage relative to, uh, you know, the, the, the mobile telcos and then even newer players like the Wi-Fi guys and, and other infrastructure players that are looking to disrupt, you know, the, the, the traditional business?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, you know what what that legacy infrastructure does. It gives you a ready customer base, but you have to give them what these, as you say, disruptive players are bringing to the market, and you have to give them to to them at a cost point that makes sense. Um, but you've got massive leverage because you don't have the time to market issues, and you don't have to offer the promise of something to the market because you can do it today. So, Telcom have a great legacy infrastructure, and they have a massive advantage. Uh, you know, they have four million copy users. If they put the right proposition in place, there's no way those guys are switching to fiber today. It would probably happen in time, right? But it also gives you the time to roll those new technologies out to that customer base.
0: So let's talk about enterprise clients. I mean, there's a, there's a major trend abroad to a large uh, corporates wanting to manage their own undersea cables even we've seen you know big boys like google do it facebook some of them partner together and then of course we're open a, a telco uh, a telco partner to help them actually roll it out under the sea you know like Telefonica or one of those kind of players uh, what do you make of that sort of trend and where do you see yourselves in things changing that direction also when are we getting more of that kind of development coming to the continent
1: Well, I mean, Africa, so again, to answer the second uh, question first, right, Africa's had uh, a pretty big expansion already in terms of uh, broadband capacity. So we now have nine cables terminating on the continent. Just 10 years ago, we had two or three. You know, so that that's been massive development. Uh, I think you're going to see more development on the terrestrial infrastructure that utilises that undersea capacity. The undersea capacity that's out there feeding into Africa, uh, we're probably I, I I don't know the numbers offhand, but I would think we're at a 15% utilisation rate. And really, in Africa, the big challenge is to get the terrestrial. Uh, infrastructure in place so that people like you and I are using 100 megabits per second or a gigabit per second at home as standard and we're streaming content instead of buying it the way we do today. When we do that, we're really going to push you know, the limits of those cable systems, right? But we're not there yet because the infrastructure in Africa is not good enough. You know, the terrestrial and the, the infrastructure, the last mile infrastructure that you and I utilize is not good enough to do that yet. That's um, That's coming. So, you know, as you say, the likes of Google and these guys are driving very aggressively different models. But they're driving those models, obviously, with content in mind and you and I as consumers in mind. So what they're really after is that we start to utilize those content services from the likes of, you know, Google and Amazon and so on. That's what they're really after.
0: Which begs the question, because, I mean, speaking to Brandon Boyle a while ago, uh, Convergence Partners, uh, he indicated to me that uh, wholesale pricing for, for broadband has come significantly lower. Uh, of course, Convergence Partners have, having an interest in SeaCOM, in, uh, in, in he'd be privy to that sort of information. You've also point, alluded to the fact that we probably have tons of excess capacity we're not tapping into as a continent. Why broadband prices not coming significantly lower to like, bring us all on board then?
1: It's happening. We haven't reached the tipping point yet where it ratchets down very quickly to Western market levels. We're still, on average, 100 times more expensive. I mean, we put all the factors together. We're still, on average, 100 times more expensive. Um, but as you, as you build out, so we still have a problem that, um, you know, that demand exceeds supply. So you need to get past that problem first. So when supply de- exceeds demand or meets demand, uh, you're going to see a rapid plummeting of those price points. So that's just build-out, and it's busy happening. Uh, we have exactly the same as the, the IT industry traditionally talk about Moore's law, with the price of computing you know, it comes down quite rapidly, but uh, you know the, the 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 size of computing rises at the same time, right? That's exactly what's happening in, in the telco world. So we're, we're we're laying more and more capacity at a much lower price point, uh, and every year the price point declines. Uh, that's going to be built into market pricing, and it's going to happen. You know, it will accelerate over time. It's happening fairly slowly now. When we look at it as a consumer and you look at your, your price of ADSL and then your ISP on top, and by the time you've paid all of it, it's actually quite expensive, right? But in the next five years, that's going to reduce quite dramatically.
0: Tell me what you consider the most likely disruptor to your business. I'm talking in terms of disruption that would see BT not exist or BT be totally obsolete. What, what could potentially do that, do you think? Is there, is there even any room at your strategy table for that kind of question?
1: Yeah, I, I look, I think there is. I think, uh, you know, BT's already built um, a lot of defensive strategies uh, where, you know, um, the media could be a massive disruptor to, to BT, you know, teaming up. So if you, if you had media, um, um, you know, strategically tied to globally, to one or two single providers, um, it's going to drive usage for those providers, you know, very dramatically to the point where, you know, clearly they would be at a scale where they could mm, potentially take us out quite easily, right? So th- th- that sort of thing. But I think, I think that BT recognizes that. I think BT is at the forefront of some of that thinking. Um, and I think the thing that we probably need to guard against most is our own arrogance and hubris. You know, we have a, a rich history. It goes back almost 180 years uh, and has been a very successful company for that time. So, so when you're in that position, I think oftentimes you you, you don't see the trouble coming because you can't conceive of it. You know? That's probably our biggest – we, we need to stay you know, focused on who the competition is and where they're coming from, and we need to keep innovating. We need to be the disruptors. right? That's our best defense, I think.
0: And so, should we expect a huge announcement in the coming years, you know, BT partnering with, say, the likes of NASPERS and, and, and choice in, in that stable? Um, well, I, I tell you, it's already
1: happened in Europe, right? So, you know, BT Sport uh, have done some really nifty things. They're the challenger. If you ask Sky News about BT Sport, they've got some choice things to say about it. You know, clearly because that challenger is actually real. You know, Uh, will it happen in Africa? I think I think the market is attractive enough. A billion consumers, rising middle income levels, you know, uh, stable policy, stable governance across Africa. We have our problems. Right. But the reality is, as Africans, we are very harshly critical of ourselves. Actually, if you look at our progress over the last 20 years, it's been significant. If you have the same kind of progress over the next 20 years, then why not? This market becomes an incredible market to make those investments in.
0: You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Look, I I recently had a chat with uh, the CEO of Corporate and Investment Banking uh, over at Barclays Africa, Stephen Van Coller, and he reckons that the complete disruption of the traditional banking business is unlikely because they pretty much have uh, a stranglehold on uh, the level of scale and access to market that newer players desperately need in order to succeed. Uh, Do you agree with that view and, uh, you know, uh, would you say that 's true for legacy players within telecoms
1: yeah i think it's, um, I think it 's true to an extent uh, you know I think Capitec have shown that actually sorry there is a place for um, you know, for for disruption and for market segments that aren 't being adequately serviced and I think that you know the vast majority of Africa uh, you could include in that categorization the big The big issue for the big banks is how do they serve the unbanked you know they don 't have a cost model that makes that possible today. Will technology allow that it 's going to. And can that be usually disruptive to, to normal banking? I think it can, but where I do agree uh, with that sentiment is I think that you know the banks and the big telcos, at scale with the massive infrastructure investments that they have, it's a very difficult obstacle for somebody else to overcome. It's not like Uber, where you can get into a market, launch a few taxis, you know, uh, and put the right kind of technology model around it, and be completely disruptive from day one. The cost of entry in that model is actually pretty low. The cost of entry into a, you know, into a banking environment where security, your brand, your balance sheet are the things that you know that drive the success and drive, especially the corporate world towards you. You you can't overcome that purely through technology disruption.
0: And so, is that true also for telecoms? I mean, where you can't wake up overnight. I mean, you you pointed to te- the example of telecom here in South Africa. Uh, certainly, no one in 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 the playing field at the moment can wake up tomorrow morning and have uh, the, you know, the database of clients they have, certainly the, the, the network of, of, of hardware in the ground that they have. Uh, do you see that as a sufficient barrier to disruption?
1: I, I think in the short term it is, but I don't think that in the long term. I don't think any telco resting on its laurels and not driving innovation themselves is safe because you, you've already seen disruption in the telco markets through the likes of Skype. And, you know, uh, uh, and now what we're calling over-the-top technologies, right? So there's a lot of disruption already happening. The trick for the telcos is to be part of that wave and not to be left behind. Um, do, do I think that you could see disruption that, you know, that, that, that really harms those companies in the short term? I think it's difficult for the same reasons we just spoke about.
0: So what will it take for fixed-line operators, or at least legacy fixed-line operators, mobile telcos, Wi-Fi players, and other you know, technology players in, 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 in the ICT space to all work together in perfect harmony so that it offers us what we've always wanted, we consumers, which is seamless mobile connectivity at great prices. When is that going to happen? When is that going to be a thing? Is this a business model issue? Is it? Are you guys all trying to crunch the numbers to see how you can all make decent you know margins doing this for us or is there just not enough political will in any of your boardrooms
1: yeah it's uh, uh, it's an interesting one i mean I, I would say that unless you have government and business working in harmony you're not going to you're not going to do that right because uh, business is in the business of making profit so if you give them a, an agenda which is the you know drive the technology infrastructure layer to a point where it's ubiquitous and cheap and affordable, which means, you know, forego potentially high profits while you do that, business naturally is not going to tend toward that. And the way you get them there is by making it, um, you know, making it attractive for them to invest, right? And, and that, that really has to be between business and government. And I think you need more PPP activity where government are the ones driving it, where government is saying, in our case, government is saying, you know, let's drive rural broadband. We've been saying it for a decade and we're not doing it. So you have to ask the question why. Yeah, it's not that business won't do it; it's that it's that they're not properly incented to do it. That incentive doesn't have to be a profit incentive. You know, it can be something else. It can be uh, the promise of future markets, the promise of future clients, better access to government uh, spending, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are ways to drive that, but I don't think it happens with business in isolation. It happens with business and government working together.
0: Right. And what would you say BT's approach to engaging with the, the, the startup scene is like is there is there a formal process around scouting for innovative ideas and buying them up or investing in them what do you guys do in that space
1: yeah we do um, um, you know as I said before we have we have this massive facility at Astral that's really about you know, driving innovation within BT itself, but uh, BT does a lot of scouting uh, in places like Israel and, you know, uh, California and the like, uh, to look at what new technologies and, and who's doing interesting things and so on. And oftentimes, it's not about buying those companies up, but it's about looking at, you know, how we could take those technologies, integrate them and scale them.
0: So That kind of sounds like, uh, looks like how we can just go steal their ideas. <laughs>
1: Well, they get, uh, they get very rich while you steal their ideas, right? Because the, the, the big thing for most entrepreneurs is access to market and access to capital, right? You solve that instantly when you've got a big brother who's willing to adopt whatever you're selling. You know the, the 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 way that adoption happens, and you know the commercial model behind it. Obviously, that's where you know are you fair or unfair, or are you profiting unnaturally? Maybe comes in as a as a conversation. But actually, if I was an entrepreneur trying to bring something to market, I would love it if IBM or somebody came to me and said, "We like it.
0: We want to. You know, we're in. We'll take it." Tell me about what that process might look like here on the continent. Uh, Say so I've got a great idea that I think will. Uh, You know, a great partner like you could accelerate and and take to market and and the two of us would make an excellent success. Uh, Talk me through what that might look like. How how would I approach BT? How would I make myself discoverable? Uh, And how would the engagement occur to the point where this is going to market maybe around the world where everywhere where BT operates?
1: Yeah, in the the BT context, I mean, there's obviously a unique South African context, right, which is enterprise development. Um, And we're all... Uh, as businesses encourage to to find these young uh, small black businesses and help them grow, right? So in that you have an inherent, uh, and if we all did it, you know, well and smartly and collaborated more, uh, I think you know I think that would drive a lot of what happens in in SA. But if you're talking in in the broader uh, African context, uh, we I, I get quite a lot of uh, I get approached quite a lot, um, and I send that back. You know, so I'll have a conversation about you know, is it interesting? Uh, is the idea scalable? Because that's obviously important to BT, right? And we typically don't do anything unless we can get global leverage out of it. So there's there's very seldom we'll take a startup conversation in a local context only, uh, because. You know, you can't scale that, and you buy a lot of risk when you do that. So, I would typically take those conversations back to the centre and say, "I think this is interesting. We should look at it." Uh, and then there's a whole process that wraps around that. the 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 problem is, you lose agility, uh, and a lot of people are going to get flushed out of the system. So, I would say it's not easy.
0: Does the the culture at BT support an entrepreneurial mindset? Are you would you, for example, say or consider yourself an entrepreneurial leader? And 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 coupled with that. Do you think that's what's necessary in order for you know a company like b t to stay on top of things
1: yeah i I think so i think if you go to any of these big businesses now and it doesn 't matter who and you talk to them you 're going to see that they're trying to marry uh you know the 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 need for control uh, and governance and so on because when the company's big without that you 're out of control very quickly right to marry that with an entrepreneurial spirit quite difficult you know. Um, BT I think does a pretty good job of that so I run my business I own the P&L I own the balance sheet Uh, I have some people who come along occasionally and ask me some difficult questions but by and large you know the decision making lies here so what we do in Africa how we do it and so on I'll go have three or four discussions Uh, unless people have a really burning issue around risk no one really interferes. So, from that perspective, definitely there is an entrepreneurial culture in BT. Uh, I do a lot of things in the continent of Africa that are unique to Africa. You know, so the way I've driven market expansion, the way I'm opening up the Nigerian market, as an example, is pretty unique to, you know, to our business.
0: Speak more to that uniqueness, because I'm curious to know when you trade notes with other heads of of business within BT. From other regions of the world, uh, what are some of the conspicuous differences in terms of the talent, cha- in terms of the challenges that you face uh, to grow the business?
1: Yeah, and, and uh, you know w- when you're talking to guys who are in the emerging markets, the challenges actually look very similar. Uh, when you're talking to guys who are sitting in Europe and so on, they- their challenges are very different. Their challenges are about scale, you know, the big, the big globals are the guys who they're fighting. They're fighting Telefonica or Verizon or AT&T, you know. In Africa, I don't really see Verizon or AT&T. It doesn't mean they're not present, you know, but they're present in a small set of global customers that they serve from home base, right? Uh, so so the, the problems I face, uh, when I talk to somebody in Latin America, they'll relate to it. But when, when I'm talking to somebody sitting, you know, in Italy or Spain, or, you know, the problems look very different.
0: Now let's talk about some of the most influential voices in your life at the moment, right? Uh, can you name three voices that currently influence how you run your business and, and, and maybe how you run your life?
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I grew up, a lot of my IBM career was uh, under the leadership of Sam Palmisano. Uh he's, he's had a big impact on, on the way I, uh, I, you know, I conduct myself in business. Uh, very, very frank and straightforward leader. Always knew where you stood with him. Uh, always try to be fair, but never shirk the tough discussions, you know, and that was kind of Sam's legacy in the business, right? Very visionary leader as well, but very good at the operational side, and you don't often find that in the same leader. Uh, and then I had the privilege when I was working in in in, um, in HP to be there when Mark Heard was, you know, was, was the leader of that business, and Mark used to say things that still live with me, and in fact... Don't only live with me in my business life, but they live with me in my personal life. You know, he used to say things like but, "trust, but measure everything." Uh, you know, uh, which, which, you know, which, which was something that I mean, it just seems so simple and straightforward now. But you learn that actually, what's on the surface of things isn't always what's really happening. And if you, if you're doing what Mark Erd used to do, which is really get to the the heart of what's happening in the business and measure it, so that you can you look at the data and say, you know, the data tells me exactly what's going on, right? Uh, he, he, he also used to say, interrogate the data until it confesses, right, which I love.
0: That's brilliant. I like it.
1: That, that to me was like, that's the crux of it, right? Really get in and down and dirty with a problem and really understand what the data is telling you and then act. Don't act in ignorance is really the key
0: message. Okay, so let's talk highs and lows uh, for a moment. Uh, When was the last time you had a good cry?
1: Um, Normally, my wife starts things off. You know, if we're watching a sad movie and she starts bawling, then I'm, you know, I'm sort of a short hair behind her. Uh, (laughs) um, But no, I mean, seriously, my mom and dad passed away in the same year. That was very traumatic, uh, you know. um, Sorry about that. Thanks. Long time ago, 2001.
0: I hear it never—it never gets any better. For some people, it always feels like just the other day. I guess.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. I still feel like you know, my dad was my best friend. I still feel that way. He's been gone a long time, but I still feel his presence.
0: All right, so that's definitely a low. Uh, when was the last? Uh, what would you say? Uh, what would you consider your greatest achievement? Your highest high, as it were.
1: Um, you know, I think I—I I, I, I think on the home front. You know, we uh, were my wife and i are really blessed with two great sons uh, my eldest boy is an intern doctor and my youngest boy is finishing a masters in industrial engineering so i think i think ultimately for me that's the you know to have this family life that's you know i wouldn't say problem free no family life is but as close to it as as you, as you can get and to have your kids in a good place achieving for themselves you know creating their own identity and making their own way in the world i think for any parent that's got to be the ultimate eye uh, in business I, i've been very fortunate i've worked with great teams and we've had really good success uh, and i've been fortunate to have really good success in, in every place that i've worked which is not that many but yeah.
0: and what would you say is the one thing that your boys either don't know about you or have a hard time understanding about you what do you think they'd say
1: um, I don't think they know that I was really a very accomplished athlete. So I think if you told them that, they'd probably laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I th- we, we we're a very close family. So they, they know pretty much what there is to know.
0: And what would you say about, uh, if I ask you the same question about the people you lead, uh, how well would you say they know you? And what's the biggest thing about you that might surprise them?
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the business, so I hope that they, they know me fairly well. Um, they, most people will probably be, you know, taken aback at how relaxed I am in my home life, uh, because I am reasonably formal in the business and I demand, you know, clearly uh, a high level of delivery from, from the people in the business. Uh, I'm, I'm exactly the opposite in, in my home. My wife drives the house. I don't argue. I do what I'm told. And I think that would surprise everybody in the building if you asked.
0: Right. And so are you an angel investor or are you backing any major VC deals in your personal capacity? Are you allowed to do that in your position?
1: Uh, I, well, I. I. I, I actually, I, I've never asked the question. But coming into BT, I, I was an investor, uh, am an investor uh, in a number of companies. And I sit on a number of boards. So, yes, I do... Uh, I enjoy that world, um, maybe even more than I enjoy this world, to be, to be honest. So I mean, there's probably a right time to go pursue that full-time. Uh, but I'm very much involved in the entrepreneurial world and startups.
0: So would you go the angel investor route and sort of uh, uh, fund a whole bunch of, uh, or basically seed a, comp- a, a, a several number of companies, or would you go like the, 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 the formal VC route, do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think I'd prefer the angel investor route and to put my own sweat equity into a business uh, and to help mold and shape where the business is going because I think I've got a lot of value to add in that space and I really enjoy doing it. Uh, so I think a combination of capital and sweat equity and obviously, you know, my, my, my access to markets uh, for me is more attractive than the pure VC route uh, and investing purely, you know, on, on an actuarial model doesn't really appeal to me.
0: Yeah, because on that level, it's pretty much a numbers game. Look, you can care, but you, you can only care so much.
1: Yeah, yeah look, you know, I mean, you, you're not to be silly about these things, but if you, if you saw a bet that looked pretty certain and all it required was capital, uh, you know, I'd, I'd probably have a punt, right? But it wouldn't be my primary investment model.
0: Right, and so it's all downhill from here?
1: Well, I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously.
0: Okay, good. Well, I hope you enjoy the last bits as well. Um, which area of tech, outside of what you, you do now, w- are you curious or excited enough about to put everything you own into? So, like all your life savings, you, like cashed out, everything, all your investments, retirement, everything, cashed out and you had to put it into this one thing outside of the telecoms industry. Which area in tech would that be?
1: Uh, for sure, Analytics. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, that uh, we're we're at the early stages. There are, you know, people like SAS and IBM and so on who've made great advances and have shaped the market, right? So they've coined terms like prescriptive and predictive and so on. And analytics is starting to play a real role now uh, in the way that IT is consumed, right? Uh, And the decisions that companies are making. But I think it's a way of what it's going to be. So first, you've got to deal with this big data challenge, right? So how do I crunch the amount of data in a meaningful way, but not only structured data, but unstructured data, so video and the like? And those challenges are being solved, but they're not yet being applied in the most creative ways we can. And I think that's coming, and I think the value unlock in that will be tremendous when it happens.
0: I think you might be onto something, but I do think you ought to check with your wife and your boys before you uh, squander their trust fund. (laughs)
1: yeah i i I don't do anything without checking with home first
0: okay cool (laughs) all right then what do you do to relax uh family uh
1: so we like to uh, play a bit of golf with my youngest boy Uh, my oldest boy is a bit too busy you know the hospital keeps him really busy we go skiing Uh, i was just saying earlier that uh, i love skiing but i'm getting to an age where it's a dangerous game you know zero-sum game so i think there'll be less of that going forward
0: I hear like uh, it's one of those things because my wife's uh, an actuarial analyst and I I hear like skiing is one of those things that actually hikes your personal risk like ridiculously. How dangerous is the sport though? Well, I haven't, uh,
1: I've been skiing a long time. I can't remember when last I, I didn't pick up an injury. So, you know, I've, I've broken lots of little bits and pieces. I've been very fortunate. I haven't, uh, well, firstly, I'm not a good enough skier to really get myself in trouble. So I don't, you know, go to the places that Michael Schumacher goes to. But, you know, he's an example of yeah, expert skier, um, tough terrain, one misstep, all right? And that's it. It's game over. Um, skiing's, skiing's a dangerous business, which is why you don't, you know, you find uh, the big football clubs don't really want their guys on the slopes,
0: right? Yeah, and I'm sure your board's going, please just stay away. I'm, they're probably very relieved to hear you haven't been at it for, for a while.
1: Uh, I'm probably a bit more expendable than Lionel Messi
0: is, but yeah. Uh, oh, don't say that. No. <laughs> now, listen, um, if you could watch only one TV show for the rest of your life, what would it be? For the rest of your life, mind. So every time you turn on the TV. You think you'll, you want to watch like, the next Liverpool match, but instead there's this TV game. For the rest of your life, sir. So think carefully.
1: Wow. Well, that's, a, that's a terrible question, actually. It's a terrible thought. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not big on TV, but definitely sports. So a sports channel and one that has a majority of football on it. I'll be happy.
0: He cheated, because that's practically like every football match that ever plays out.
1: Exactly. I'd be a happy man.
0: And what would you rather live without, your mobile phone or your laptop? Without. Definitely a laptop. Get rid of it. Okay. And if you had to live without your CIO or your CFO, CIO or your CFO, who would you live without? (laughs) Wow.
1: Okay. I just want to state for the record that this is just based on role and not personalities. Um but my I think the CIO today is
0: critical to how your business performs. I, I would have guessed that given, you know, what you would have invested in and in your, your love for data. Nothing personal, Mr. CFO, whoever you are. Um finally, is there a question I haven't asked that you wish I did? Uh
1: no because I'm a very private person the less questions I answer the better. Um, but uh you just maybe you know BT's aspirations in Africa and how committed we are to Africa as a continent.
0: Let me let me let me humor you. So so what are BT what are BT's aspirations here on the continent here in Africa?
1: To become a local business, to be global but to be local and to be recognized as a local business in all of our core markets and obviously to grow our wallet share fairly significantly.
0: You certainly can't get more local than shaking your hand right here. Thank you so much, sir. Uh, all of it has been a pleasure.
1: Thank you very much. Really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations.